Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges. I'm a pediatrician here at the Medical College of Georgia. Today, I'm here with Dr. Matthew Smith, a third-year pediatric resident, and Dr. Renuka Mehta, a pediatric intensivist at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Welcome. Thanks for inviting me to join this podcast. Hey, Zach. Glad to be here. On today's episode, we will discuss an approach to the critically ill pediatric patient, and we'll finish up with some points on respiratory failure. We hope to review the fundamentals and include some clinical pearls that may be helpful for our learners next time they rotate through the emergency department or the ICU. Matthew, do you want to get us started with a case? Yeah, sure. So, our patient is a 16-year-old girl with one week of upper respiratory symptoms who presents to the emergency department due to 24 hours of worsening shortness of breath and worsening fever. Upon arrival to the ED, she is very tachypnic and is only able to speak in one to two word sentences. Dr. Mehta, how would you begin to evaluate this patient? It's important that we have a systematic approach to caring for critically ill patients. This typically includes the initial pediatric assessment triangle followed by a primary and secondary assessment. So tell us more about the pediatric assessment triangle. The pediatric assessment triangle is our initial visual assessment from the door when we first see a patient. This is a rapid evaluation tool that establishes a child's clinical status and directs initial management priorities. It uses the acronym ABC. A stands for appearance. Is the patient well-appearing or is in distress? Are they alert or lethargic? Are they irritable? And if so, are they able to be consoled? And finally, is their speech appropriate for their development? Next is B for work of breathing. Is the patient breathing rapidly or are there obvious signs of respiratory distress or even apnea? And last is C for color. Does the patient have appropriate circulation to his skin or is there obvious cyanosis? Is the patient mottled, blue, or pale? All of these things would suggest poor perfusion and be worrisome for shock. If all above components of the assessment triangle are normal, then we can methodically work through our history and physical examination. Matthew, the patient you described has increased work of breathing, suggesting respiratory distress requiring immediate intervention. Because this child may be critically ill, we need to quickly move on to the primary assessment. Okay, to review, the pediatric assessment triangle is your initial assessment that helps you decide if the child is critically ill and needs immediate care. Use the acronym ABC, and that includes 1. General appearance, 2. Worker breathing, and 3. Color. The pediatric assessment triangle is how we triage our patients to identify which children require immediate attention. So, After we identify a child to be critically ill, we move on to our primary assessment. For the primary assessment, we use a similar acronym, ABCDE, that stands for airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and exposure. As we move through each step of our primary assessment, we need to quickly identify and address any concerning issues. It's important that we don't skip or move past any certain step in our primary assessment until the issue is resolved. Exactly, Zach. With each step, we need to evaluate, identify, and then intervene. Once we make an intervention, we need to remember to circle back and reevaluate how that intervention affected the child. 
So to run through the primary assessment for our patient, starting with A for airway, the question is patent or obstructed. For older kids like our patient, this is best assessed by whether they can talk or not talk. Essentially, are they able to move air through their upper airway? For younger kids, crying, while heartbreaking, can be a good evidence of a patent airway. So for our patient, she's able to speak even if it's in very short sentences, so we can infer that her airway is indeed patent. If you're concerned for an obstruction, some common interventions for opening the airway include a head tilt, chin lift, or jaw thrust if you're worried about cervical spine injury. Other alternatives include placing a nasal trumpet, laryngeal mask airway, endotracheal intubation, or even a surgical airway. Next, B for breathing. The question here, again, is what is the quality of oxygenation and or ventilation? On exam, we can assess for abnormal breath sounds such as wheezing, crackles, strider, or asymmetrical breath sounds. We can also look for labored breathing, such as retractions, nasal flaring, belly breathing. For our 16-year-old girl, she was breathing 30 to 40 breaths per minute, had an oxygen saturation in the lower 90s, and had evidence of significant labored breathing with supraclavicular and intercostal retractions. She was also noted to have crackles throughout all lung fields. It seems like this is a great time for intervention. Great catch, Zach. And yeah, that's exactly what we did. We evaluated the patient, identified that she had a significant respiratory distress, and made an intervention. Remember that in pediatrics, all vital signs have age-based normal values. A respiratory rate in 30 to 40 is very concerning in our adolescent patient, but might be normal in a younger patient. So our first step was to place her on a non-rebreathing face mask with 100% oxygen. Now that we have intervened on her breathing, we can move on to C for circulation. This is best understood as how well is the patient perfusing their tissues. From the monitor, we can evaluate heart rate, rhythm, and blood pressure. On exam, note the capillary refill time, heart sounds on auscultation, peripheral and central pulses, skin color, temperature of the extremities. For our patient, she was tachycardic with a heart rate in the 110s, and her blood pressure was normal. The remainder of her circulatory exam was within normal limits. Fortunately, she did not require any interventions here. However, some common interventions at this step of the resuscitation are volume repletion with isotonic crystalloids or blood products, vasopressors, inotropes, or electrical therapy with cardioversion or defibrillation. Next, for D, disability, we are looking for neurologic impairment. While in trauma patients, commonly you see the Glasgow Coma Scale used to detect patients' best eye, verbal, and motor response. In pediatrics, it may be helpful to simplify this to describe the level of stimulus needed to alert the patient. You may hear the acronym AVPU, or AVPU, that stands for alert, response to voice, response to pain, or unresponsive. This gives you an overall assessment of the neurologic function. Pupil size and point-of-care glucose at this stage can also be very useful at revealing reversible causes of impaired mentation, such as opioid overdose or hypoglycemia. For our patient, she was alert, but could tell that she was getting a little tired and her mentation was slowing despite her oxygen support with the non-rebreather. Wrapping up the primary assessment is E, exposure. Here you are measuring a core temperature, investigating the skin for burns or rashes, and assessing the extremities and trunk for evidence of trauma, such as a bruise, bleed, or deformity. Fortunately, our patient didn't have any of these. Great job, Matthew. 
It is important not only to have a detailed assessment and targeted intervention as you presented, but also to reassess after each intervention. We want to be sure that our patient is improving with our intervention and to escalate management if patient condition continues to deteriorate. The primary assessment in our case suggests that our patient has acute hypoxic respiratory distress. Now we can move on to the secondary assessment. The secondary assessment includes a focused history and complete physical exam. For the history, we can use the acronym SAMPLE to help us remember the key points. So SAMPLE stands for S, signs and symptoms, A, allergies, M, medications, P, past medical history, L, last meal, and finally E, events leading up to the presentation. Matthew, will you go through our patient's secondary assessment? Sure. This patient's sample history was notable for a week of runny nose, congestion, and a cough that has just worsened. She has no known allergies, environmental or drug-related. Her home medications include an oral decongestant, which she has been taking for her upper respiratory symptoms. She has no significant past medical history. Her last meal had been a little bit of soup the day before. As far as events leading up to her presentation, her mom reported that the girl had worsening shortness of breath and sleepiness. They had stayed up most of the night due to her coughing, and this morning mom just didn't feel comfortable with how hard her daughter was working to breathe. Now, as we mentioned before, every intervention requires a re-evaluation. So before, we started her on a non-rebreather for oxygen saturations in the lower 90s and tachypnea to the 30s to 40s. After 20 or so minutes on the non-rebreather, her vitals did not improve. Maybe her oxygen saturation was even dipping into the 80s and she was becoming slower and slower to respond to my questions. So based on this assessment, our patient respiratory illness is likely to be due to parenchymal lung disease like viral pneumonia or even a secondary bacterial infection. After our initial interventions and re-evaluation, our patient respiratory status has worsened as evidenced by increasing her work of breathing progressing to respiratory failure. So maybe we should pause here in our case. I feel like respiratory failure is something that we all know when we see it, but remind us, what exactly do you mean when you say this patient has respiratory failure? So respiratory failure is the inability to adequately oxygenate, eliminate carbon dioxide or both. If there is isolated hypoxemia or low oxygen content in the blood, then we call that hypoxemic respiratory failure. Clinically, you can diagnose hypoxemic respiratory failure if the partial pressure of oxygen is less than 60 mm of mercury on an arterial blood sample or if the pulse oximeter reads less than about 90%. Remember that it's hard to know the PO2 judging from the pulse ox since the oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve starts to flatten at above 90%. On the other hand, isolated hypercapnia, which means elevated carbon dioxide level, is called hypercapnic respiratory failure. And arterial blood gas will show a PaCO2 greater than 50 millimeter mercury or increased more than 20 millimeter mercury from baseline in a patient with chronic respiratory failure. There should also be an acute respiratory acidosis with a pH less than 7.35. Okay, so to review, 
hypoxic respiratory failure is a PaO2 of less than 60 or less than 90% oxygen saturation on your pulse ox. Hypercapnic respiratory failure is an acute respiratory acidosis with a PaCO2 greater than 50 or more than 20 above the patient's baseline. Remember that our patients who have a history of prematurity or chronic lung disease may have elevated carbon dioxide level at baseline, so-called chronic respiratory failure. An acute increase in their CO2 should cause a respiratory acidosis and would qualify as an acute worsening of chronic respiratory failure. Something else that may be confusing is that hypoxemic respiratory failure is called type 1 and hypercapnic respiratory failure is called type 2 respiratory failure. Dr. Mehta, how would you approach the different causes of respiratory failure? Remember that effective respirations require an intact airway, lungs, chest wall, central nervous system, and cardiovascular system. Any pathology that severely affects one or more of these systems can result in respiratory failure. An easy way to classify the causes of respiratory failure is to use the following five types. Airway obstruction, lung parenchymal disorders, mechanical chest wall failure, neurological failure, and failure to meet increased metabolic demands. Let's review those quickly. First, airway obstruction. Examples include foreign body, anaphylaxis, epiglottitis, and croup. Second, lung parenchymal diseases. Things like pneumonia, cystic fibrosis, and pulmonary edema are included here. The third that Dr. Mehta listed was mechanical chest wall failure. Think of severe scoliosis, trauma with flail chest, or even a neuromuscular disorder. Fourth, neurologic failure with disordered control of breathing. These include hyperventilation, seizures, traumatic brain injury, stroke, increased intracranial pressure, and toxic ingestion. Finally, fifth, failure to meet increased metabolic needs. A good example of the hypermetabolic rate in patients suffering from, say, septic shock. Another approach is to look at the actual pathophysiology that's causing poor oxygenation or reducing carbon dioxide clearance. This may sound complex at first, but actually it's quite simple. Causes of hypoxemia and hypercapnia can be due to either 1. Ventilation-perfusion mismatch or two, impaired oxygen transfer at the alveolar capillary membrane. Let's start by talking about ventilation perfusion, or VQ mismatch. First, remember that to have effective gas exchange, the alveoli have to be effectively ventilated. Any pulmonary vessels need appropriate perfusion. Because even in healthy lungs, both ventilation and perfusion are not homogenous, there will be some areas of the lung that are overventilated and some areas that are underperfused and vice versa. This relationship between ventilation and perfusion is not obvious until there is a lobar pneumonia or a large pulmonary embolus that results in severe imbalance that causes either hypoxemia or hypercapnia. Let's think about diseases that result in a high VQ ratio that is adequate ventilation but poor perfusion. The best example is a pulmonary embolism that restricts blood flow to the pulmonary capillaries. The alveoli in the lungs are otherwise normal and continue to ventilate normally, but they act as respiratory dead space because they are unable to contribute to gas exchange due to the poor perfusion. 
Next, let's talk about diseases that result in a low VQ ratio or poor ventilation but adequate perfusion. Here, a good example is pneumonia. Pneumonia impairs ventilation to the consolid areas of lung. If there is inadequate hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction, the capillaries near the affected alveoli remain perfused. This imbalance impairs gas exchange and results in right-to-left shunting through the pulmonary circulation. Before we move on, let's recap VQ mismatch. Large changes in the relationship of alveolar ventilation or perfusion will result in respiratory failure. Diseases like a pulmonary embolism restrict blood flow and results in a high VQ mismatch and increased respiratory dead space. Pneumonia, on the other hand, impairs ventilation, results in a low VQ mismatch, and right-to-left shunting. Dr. Mehta, will you finish up this portion of the discussion and tell us about the other mechanism of respiratory failure, impaired gas transfer at the alveolar capillary membrane? Sure. Patients who are suffering from ARDS or have a history of bronchopulmonary dysplasia are unable to effectively oxygenate or remove carbon dioxide due to impaired diffusion at the alveolar capillary membrane level. This is usually due to inflammation or thickening of the alveolar capillary membrane. Commonly, our critically ill patients have elements of both VQ mismatch and diffusion impairment contributing to respiratory failure. It's important that we keep all of this in mind when deciding what is the next best step for our patient. Okay, very good. Matthew, will you catch us up with our case? Sure. So, this poor 16-year-old girl was already on a nonary breather and still having oxygen saturations in the upper 80s. She was also still very tachypnic. A portable chest x-ray showed a large right lower lobe consolidation and diffuse hazy infiltrates throughout. We even got an arterial blood gas which was notable for a respiratory acidosis with a pH of 7.29 and a PCO2 of 51. Dr. Meadow, what is your next step for this patient? In this case, the girl has a worsening respiratory status despite 100% oxygen we need to further escalate our non-invasive respiratory support. And Dr. Mehta, what makes this patient a good candidate for non-invasive respiratory support? So, non-invasive ventilation can be used to safely delay or prevent intubation in some patients. This spares patients from the risk of invasive mechanical ventilation like airway trauma, agitation, and ventilator-associated pneumonia. Non-invasive support works best for patients with single organ system failure that have appropriate mentation and are able to maintain their airway. In this scenario, I would start her on BiPAP pending reassessment and further evaluation. This patient requires close monitoring in case she fails to respond and requires intubation. It may be helpful if we review the general types of non-invasive support and discuss how they are best used. Overall, non-invasive respiratory support refers to providing high-flow oxygen or positive pressure ventilation via nasal prongs, face mask, or helmet. The three modes that I think our learners should know well are CPAP, BiPAP, and high-flow nasal cannula. So I can start with CPAP. CPAP stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. This mode provides continuous pressure throughout the respiratory cycle, analogous to PEEP on the ventilator. The increased airway pressure improves alveolar recruitment and oxygenation. 
CPAP works best for patients with hypoxemic, otherwise known as type 1 respiratory failure. A good example is congestive heart failure with pulmonary edema. BiPAP, which is also called BPAP, is the next modality for us to discuss. BiPAP provides bilevel positive pressure ventilation. This means that it provides a higher inspiratory pressure along with the continuous positive airway pressure during exhalation. The added inspiratory pressure can be helpful for patients who have combined hypoxic and hypercapnic respiratory failure. It also works well for patients who are fatigued due to increased work of breathing. Good examples include status asthmaticus or acute chest syndrome in patients with sickle cell disease. So our patient in this case who likely has pneumonia and combined respiratory failure will be a great candidate for BiPAP. The additional support during inspiration and option to set a required respiratory rate will be helpful to improve both oxygenation and ventilation. The last non-invasive modality that we wanted to review is high-flow nasal cannula. High-flow nasal cannula provides warmed, humidified air delivered by nasal cannula at flow rates that otherwise would be not tolerated by a regular cannula. It functions mostly by washing out the air in the upper airway, which decreases the dead space and prevents rebreathing of previously exhaled gas. It may also provide a small amount of PEEP at higher flows and with appropriate patient positioning. Preferred flow rates vary, but at our institution, they typically are 1 to 2 liters per minute per kilogram in young children, with an adult max of about 60 liters per minute. Flow is usually titrated based on the patient's work of breathing and carbon dioxide levels, with increased flow improving carbon dioxide clearance. FiO2 is, of course, titrated to maintain appropriate oxygen saturations. So high-flow nasal cannula is generally well-tolerated and allows for airway clearance and pulmonary toileting, which cannot be easily done on CPAP or BiPAP that sometimes requires a full face mask. Dr. Mehta, let's say we trialed our patient on BiPAP for one to two hours, but she did not improve and even started requiring increased pressures in FiO2. What's your thought process when you're considering if a patient requires intubation? So the indication for emergency intubation of pediatric patients typically fall into one of the four categories. First, is there inadequate oxygenation or ventilation despite our intervention thus far? Second, is our patient unable to maintain or protect their airway? Third, is the patient likely to deteriorate and require intubation in near future? And lastly, is a prolonged diagnostic study or transport is required. Let's review those indications quickly. One, inadequate oxygenation or ventilation. This could be persistent hypoxemia, not responding to invasive support, or worsening respiratory acidosis. Two, unable to protect the airway. There are many causes, but think about airway obstruction, altered mental status, and traumatic brain injury with a Glasgow coma score less than eight. Three, impending clinical deterioration. This is where we really appreciate the experience of our emergency physicians and pediatric intensivists. By recognizing that the patient will likely continue to worsen, early intubation may prevent an emergent procedure which comes with higher risks. And four, prolonged diagnostic study or transport. For our community physicians, if your patient has a long ride to the nearest PICU, then securing the airway might be the right decision prior to leaving your emergency department. 
And of course, if there are questions about what's the best decision for your patient, then getting your referral center on the phone to guide that decision is a great idea. Dr. Mehta, after the decision is made and the patient is intubated, what are the basic concepts that our learners need to understand about mechanical ventilation? Conventional mechanical ventilation is mostly categorized as either volume-controlled or pressure-controlled with significant overlap with the more complex modes. We set the volume or inspiratory pressure of each breath. It may be helpful if we talk through how to set up a ventilator to help teach some of the fundamentals. It might be easiest to start with volume control. The first setting that we should discuss for volume control is tidal volume. Tidal volume is the volume of gas delivered with each breath. Large tidal volumes are strongly associated with worsening lung injury. So we typically maintain these patients at 6 to 8 milliliters per kilogram of ideal body weight to reduce this risk. Patients with severe lung injury may even require smaller tidal volumes. And that's right, Matthew. We will adjust the tidal volume based on the elasticity or compliance of the lungs. Remember, compliance is a measurement of how much lungs are able to expand with a certain amount of pressure. Healthy lungs are more compliant and are able to fully expand with smaller pressures. Our patient's lung, in this case, will likely have poor compliance and will require higher pressures to inflate. Next, let's set the respiratory rate. This simply is the amount of breaths we are going to guarantee the patient receives per minute. Along with tidal volume, this determines the patient's minute ventilation. Remember that minute ventilation is very important for determining your patient's ability to clear carbon dioxide. So our 16-year-old patient with combined respiratory failure will need a respiratory rate of at least 15 to 20 to ensure adequate ventilation. Next, let's talk about PEEP. Remember, PEEP is positive end expiratory pressure and is analogous to CPAP that we discussed earlier. PEEP provides additional pressure at the end of exhalation to prevent alveolar collapse. It's a main determinant of mean airway pressure and oxygenation. All patients should receive minimum PEEP of about 5 cm of water. PEEP helps keep alveoli open after exhalation, preventing atelectra trauma from repetitive opening and closing with each breath. PEEP allows us to maintain appropriate oxygen saturation on a lesser amount of FiO2. Our patient in this case should be started off on a PEEP of about 6 and titrated up based on the degree of hypoxia. So how high can we titrate PEEP up in pediatric patients? In adults, this has been studied well, and for their patients with the worst lung injury, guidelines recommend increasing PEEP up to 18 to 24 centimeter of water. In our practice with pediatric patients, we normally increase PEEP up to 12 and temporarily up to 15 if needed. If our patients continue to require high level of PEEP, then we may try a different mode of ventilation or even ECMO support. It's also important to keep in mind that increased airway pressure will reduce venous return to the right side of the heart and may lead to hypotension in hemodynamically unstable patients. 
Thus, when we are escalating our respiratory support, we should be ready to treat hypotension with either fluid or vasoactive medications. So Dr. Mehta, how do we know when we are giving too much pressure and putting our patient at risk for a pneumothorax? Should we just watch the peak pressures? That's a good question, Matthew, and something that can easily be confused. Our ventilators on volume control will all have pressure alarm that sounds when the peak inspiratory pressure is above a set value. Elevated peak inspiratory pressures can be due to poor lung compliance, but you have to also consider other sources of resistance in the ventilator circuit. A mucus plug in the endotracheal tube restricting airflow is a common cause among other things. On the other hand, a plateau pressure is a better marker of the pressure required to expand the lungs. Remember that a plateau pressure is obtained by performing an inspiratory hold on the ventilator. This is the pressure required to maintain the lungs in a fully open state. We know that plateau pressure above 30 cm of water places the patient at high risk for barotrauma or a pneumothorax. Okay, so we definitely need to pay attention to high peak inspiratory pressures, but keep in mind that plateau pressures may give us a little bit more information about the health of our patient's lungs. Zach, do you want to tell us about pressure-controlled ventilation and how it differs from volume-controlled? Sure. In pressure-controlled ventilation, peak inspiratory pressure is the independent variable and volume is the dependent variable. Because the inspiratory pressure is set, the delivered volume at each breath differs with the compliance of the lung. Pressure control ventilation is the preferred mode when there may be a leak around the endotracheal tube. The use of uncuffed endotracheal tubes in many neonatal intensive care units and uncuffed tracheostomy tubes in chronically ventilated patients give pressure control ventilation an advantage in these circumstances. In the PICU, we need to ensure that as our patient's lung compliance changes, we adjust our inspiratory pressure to maintain appropriate tidal volumes. For example, early in the disease course, a patient with acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, will have very stiff lungs and require a high pressure to deliver appropriate tidal volumes. As their lungs heal and become more compliant, tidal volumes will gradually increase. This means we need to carefully reduce the inspiratory pressure to match our patient's lung compliance to make sure we're not delivering too large of a tidal volume. That's right, Zach. Remember that children with lung injury, we should try to keep tidal volume at about 6 to 8 milliliters per kilo. If we use pressure control ventilation, then we should keep a close eye on the delivered tidal volume so we don't exceed that value. More advanced ventilator modes may use pressure control ventilation in conjunction with volume control to prevent large changes in tidal volume and to further decrease the risk of barotrauma. A good example is PRVC, which stands for Pressure Regulated Volume Control. This might be something that we can discuss in the future if we have time for a dedicated episode on invasive mechanical ventilation. The last concept that we should mention is pressure support. Pressure support is the amount of pressure provided to a patient to support a spontaneous breath. Remember, our patients who are intubated will have an increased airway resistance due to the narrow endotracheal tube and need support to overcome this with spontaneous breaths. 
Pressure support is typically used as an adjunct to other modes of ventilation or to evaluate if the patient is ready to be extubated. Adequate pressure support is very important for spontaneously breathing patient to overcome endotracheal tube resistance. Starting at a pressure support of 12 cm of water would be appropriate for this 16-year-old girl who likely has a 6.5 size endotracheal tube. When it becomes time to assess her readiness for extubation, a pressure support trial without a set ventilator rate can be used to see if her lungs have healed enough to get the breathing tube out. It is important that we appropriately set pressure support trials based on the resistance in our patient's ventilatory circuit. Too little support will tire the patient out and too much support will cause false reassurance that the patient is ready for extubation. Wow, lots of great information here. I think we'll have to continue this conversation on another episode in the future. As we're getting short on time, Matthew, do you want to wrap things up with some take-home points? Sure. Remember to use the pediatric assessment triangle to identify the critically ill child then work through a structured primary and secondary assessment. Diagnose hypoxemic respiratory failure in patients with a PaO2 of less than 60 millimeters of mercury on an arterial blood gas or oxygen saturation of less than 90% on pulse ox. Hypercapnic respiratory failure is an acute respiratory acidosis with a PaCO2 greater than 50 or more than 20 above the patient's baseline. Next, non-invasive ventilation may be appropriate for your patient with isolated respiratory failure who can maintain their airway. And finally, if you are caring for a critically ill child in a community setting, get your referral picky on the phone early. Early intubation may be the right choice for your patient, but this decision is best made with the help from the receiving intensivist. Great. Thanks, Dr. Smith and Dr. Mehta for joining me on today's episode. I'm looking forward to having you back for another episode very soon. Zach and Matthew, this was a great podcast on respiratory failure, and thank you for having me. Thanks, Zach, for having me on. An additional thanks to Dr. Smitha Matthew and Dr. Catherine McLeod, who also contributed to today's discussion. And thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcg pediatric podcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. Please remember to subscribe and we look forward to speaking with you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.